Promises, promises. I'm fighting an urge right now, and I'm going to win. No? No. No. So, I love words. I love studying words. I uh, love the history of words and language and communication. And so as a result, the, the first thing I did, well, second thing after thinking of the word promise and promises, promises as the title of this sermon, was looked at the etymology, the history and the origins of the word promise. And it's, it's interesting to look at one of these etymological um, uh, breakdowns. It says it's a pledge, a vow from old French promesse, uh, promise, guarantee, assurance, and directly from Latin, uh, promissum, a promise, uh, promittere, which it's interesting. When you break down the word pro, before, and then mitere, to release, to let go, send, or throw. And so the, the, the foundation of this word is, is about a declaration of something that's made about the future. It's about an act or something that is to be done or that will be done. Just keep that in the back of your head. It may or may not be useful through the rest of my blathering along up here. But I will say this much, that the word promise, I think, for many of us, I know it does for me, makes me think of anticipation, expectation, and obligation. All at the same time, all in that one word. Promise is also something that comes up for us, for many of us, in terms of relationships that we have. Anyone who has been married understands that there are promises that are made in marriage vows, that are made in the ceremony and the way a marriage is completed, regardless of whether it's in a church, a city hall, or by a river, or in someone's living room. It was fascinating for me then to take this idea of a declaration about something made in the future. This is from our English language, our westernized English language. And then think about the word promise as part of the marriage rite. And then do a little bit of research into non-Western marriage rituals. And look at how consistently each of them looks forward. There are many things about global marriage rights or rights in which people are united to each other, whether it's men with men, men and women, women and women, or otherwise. But they always look forward. There's always this sense of something great and beautiful to come, often in many cultures that is children. And children become the product of this beautiful promise. I love looking at children. I love seeing all the children this morning, hearing Mandy talk to them about 
seven principles and a possible eighth, again, looking forward. But I love looking and hearing them, watching them laugh, watching the different ways they learn, because they are quite literally a physical promise of tomorrow. One need not be a parent in order to benefit from that promise and that wisdom. So the marriage vow is a promise that you make to someone else. It's a, mar- it's, a va- it's a promise that's made to others. There are also promises that are made to society in terms of safety, security, the way we want to be with each other. One of my favorite promises, particularly nowadays, to challenge is the promise that's made in the oath of office of the President of the United States. I do solemnly swear or affirm mm -hmm, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and I will be, I will to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. It ends there. So help me God is not actually part of the official oath. And do take note that one has the choice to affirm as opposed to swear which is an interesting thing. One of the reasons that was included in that original language is because the Founding Fathers decided that they wanted to be religiously inclusive, recognizing that Quakers would not swear. Mm. There's a long history of people messing up the oath of office as well. Uh, I encourage you to Google that and have a look at some of the ways in which it's been convoluted. There was a, a wonderful moment where uh, I think it was Obama's first inauguration, not his first inauguration, but his first swearing in, which actually happened in the East Room where um, Chief Justice Roberts basically got it backwards. And Obama was sort of waiting for him to correct it. And ultimately, he didn't, so Obama went ahead, and then they got all sort of tied up with each other. He became president, and it was great. So <laughs> no worries there. There are also oaths of office that were delivered in unexpected places. For instance, when um, President Harding died suddenly, Calvin Coolidge was sworn in on the family farm in Vermont by his father who happened to be a notary public. Kind of unusual. And of course, many of us are, are, are well aware of the swearing for Johnson's, Lyndon Baines Johnson's first swearing in on Air Force One after the assassination of John Kennedy, sworn in by Sarah T. Hughes, a Northern District Judge in Texas, and still the only woman to provide the oath of office to a president of the United States. May that change. So that's another kind of promise that is made. But we're talking in this context of talking about promises, we're talking about it in the larger context of covenant, which is our theme for this month, February and March. So promise and covenant. And I won't go down the rabbit hole of the, the minutia between the two words, but rather I would write, like 
I'd like to actually kind of combine them a little bit and talk about the promise that our covenants represent. And just to give you a little bit of the background, because there's a ton of it, on this word covenant and how and why we use it, part of the reason we are so connected to the word covenant is because it is such a powerful word in our Judeo-Christian history. Uh, I specifically think about Genesis chapter 13, verses 3 through 14, where we hear about Abraham. Let me read to you. Abraham, Abram, fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. That's quite a covenant. And a covenant of that magnitude certainly ends up being expressed in an equally meaningful way uh, through the act of male circumcision. That is the representation in Jewish law of the covenant and the depth of that covenant that God has with the Jewish people. That's one take, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible take on covenant. We move into the New Testament, the New Covenant, and we hear these words in Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. It's one reason we call it the New Covenant. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. A whole different take on the commitment of the relationship between humankind and God. And the difference between the two, the different expressions of the two, is foundational to why even we today, in a congregation that is not, or attempts at least, not to be purely Christocentric, it's reasons why this word covenant means so very much to us. That it's part of the reason that this building was built, that this congregation came together in the first place. It is a loaded word, covenant. It is also loaded for a couple of other reasons, more recent, less intimate. And I'm speaking of racially restrictive covenants on housing. And it's remarkable when you do a little bit of research about that and you've come up with the two places where racially restrictive covenants started were California and where? Massachusetts. 
late 19th century. Um, I've posted some resources outside uh, of the parlor that you may want to have a look at, including a link to a paper on racially restrictive covenants. I'll let you read about it on your own if you want to know more, but realize these were covenants that were established to keep people out, specific people, non-Protestant, non-white, out of communities. There's a quote from one of them that I'll share with you that gives you an idea, if you're unfamiliar with this, of where they come from. In consideration of the premises and the sum of $5, wow, I wish I could do rent for that now. The sum of $5, each of the other in hand paid, the parties hereto mutually covenant, promise, and agree each to the other and for their respective heirs and assigns, that no part of the land now owned by the parties hereto shall ever be used or occupied by or sold, conveyed, leased, rented, or given to Negroes, or any person or persons of the Negro race or blood. This covenant shall run with the land and bind the respective heirs and assigns of the parties hereto for the period of 21 years, from uh, and after the date of these presents. Loaded. When we use the word covenant, we cannot actually use it casually. We must be invested in what we would like that meaning to be, and we must be willing to clarify what that means to us in this community when we say covenant. What's interesting about some of the other promises and covenants that can be made is they can be broken. For the marriage vow, there can be divorce. For the oath of office, there is impeachment and resignation. Um, but what about the promise or covenant you make to yourself or that you make to this community? I, I don't want us to break that promise, ever. Promise, a declaration about future, some act to be done. So certainly we can't keep all promises, but maybe, just maybe, we can keep this one that keeps us together. And I want to give you a lens through which to regard or a filter through which to receive this idea of being able to keep this covenant with each other. It requires being in relationship, the practice of being in community with each other. That's one piece of it. The next piece is being willing to explore faith, whatever that might mean to you. That is one of the most beautiful and remarkable pieces about coming together like this. We get to ask these questions of, what is faith? Do I care? Why faith? What is the history? That can only happen in a place that you can casually call church. And the third piece that I would like you to consider is that 
through these you get to experience love, whether you like it or not. <laughs> this is a respite, a restoration for you in a sometimes and often turbulent world. Relationship, faith, love. As I say at the beginning of our services, Unitarian Universalism is a covenantal faith, meaning it is non-creedal. There is no singular statement that we make to affirm this coming together. Although I have you read the covenant, I know that each of you, and I invite each of you, to interpret it differently and according to your unique selves. And at the same time, we are a community that likes to be able to at least identify a little bit of where we're going and, and how we are together. Hence the reason we do have the seven principles. There's going to be not just the movement over the next few years in terms of the eighth principle, but it's actually in the bylaws of the UUA to revisit the principles altogether. That's supposed to happen on a regular basis, where we ask questions. Are these serving us? Is this how we want to covenant with one another? That's spectacular. We're really lucky. Not everyone gets that, you know? I've posted another resource outside that lets me know that there is some exciting stuff on the horizon in terms of revisioning the seven principles. I have a couple of colleagues, the Reverend Kimberly Debus and Reverend Ian Riddell, who imagined instead of a list that's all hierarchical and like, oh, I can't remember them all, it's a wheel. The seven principles wheel. And it strives to keep them in relationship with each other, each principle in some kind of magical and inspired relationship with each other. What I love is that the first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of all beings, is at the center. And then wrapped around it, embracing it, is the seventh principle, the, inherent, uh, the, the, the interdependent web of all. Kimberly, Reverend Kimberly, is an artist and is working on an art-based ministry in upstate New York. Reverend Ian is the music minister, uh, minister of music and arts out in San Diego. And there are others in our movement who are willing to challenge us and ask us these questions. Paula Cole-Jones has been the champion of the Eighth Principle Project. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, I'll read you now this proposed eighth principle. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. Somehow I don't see that having many problems being adopted. We just need to get it out there, and we are hopefully going to have some more direct conversations about just that. But I want you to return to these three elements one more time. 
that I brought up because they're in everything I've just been talking about. Relationship, faith, and love. As we continue to build our journey, as we continue to grow, as we continue to thrive, even as we continue to resist, do not forget that our covenant with one another begins and ends with how we are in relationship with one another, our differing and shared and multiple concepts of faith, and a deep abiding love for one another. May you be blessed in all you do.